You may remember the name um, Ethan Crouch. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But Ethan has an interesting story. You see, at, uh, at age 16, back in 2013, Ethan stood on trial. Ethan stood on trial for the death of four people. Ethan was a wealthy kid in, in, in Texas. And one night, he, had, he and a group of friends, they were at a party. And he was well above the, the, the blood alcohol limit and driving his dad's pickup truck, lost control, slammed into a stop car. Four people were, were killed instantly and nine were injured. As tragic as that story was, the tragedy continued. At his trial, his lawyers argued what is now known as the affluenza defense. They hired a psychologist to come and testify on behalf of him, and they testified, and he testified this, that the 16-year-old had grown up with a sense of entitlement and developed poor judgment after being coddled by his wealthy parents. Growing up wealthy might have left him with psychological afflictions too rich to tell right from wrong. He pled guilty to, in 2013 to four counts of manslaughter and a juvenile court judge, instead of sent, sentencing him to the 20-year prison sentence that the prosecutors had asked for, they gave him 10 years of probation. As you can imagine, just hearing the, the sighs and the oohs from this crowd, you can imagine the feelings that were present, present in that courtroom between the, the victim's families, the injured, the feelings of rejection, the feelings of anger, the feelings of indignation. If we feel it that way, you can only imagine how they felt. You see, a story like this makes us angry. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uneasy. Because you see, from an, a, a young age, even in our, in our school days, we remember that we learned about the legal system, we learned about the courts, we learned about the separation of powers, we learned about how uh, we were given that civics lesson of how, how our country works. And within that lesson, we were taught this, that our legal system is built on the premise that everyone is treated equally, no matter how wealthy or how poor you are, no matter what your background is, if you're committed, uh, convicted of a crime, you will be given the appropriate sentence. While we hold on to this belief firmly, stories like Ethan's remind us that there is a gap in there somewhere. There's a gap between our belief of what the system does and what reality presents itself as. In other words, there is a gap between belief our understanding of the world and how the world behaves. Sometimes that presents itself, it doesn't just present itself in the courtroom, it presents itself in politics, it presents itself in, in business, maybe at your workplace, maybe in your family, maybe in, in your relationships, maybe your significant other, and maybe in yourself. There is a gap between belief and how we behave. We believe we are certain, a certain person, we believe that we have a, cer a certain relationship, but we behave a different way. 
It bothers us when we see that in ourselves, and it bothers us when we see that in others, especially people that you hold to higher esteem. You know, like a pastor you love and admire, like a pastor who you would think is committed to the New England way of life and is making every effort to belong, and yet he shows up like this. <laughs> you laughed, that took a lot of courage. <laughs> Not that morning for the rest. <laughs> um, sometimes it happens in relationships. If someone says they, are, they believe in something, let's say loyalty, but they behave disloyal, there is there is a dissonance between what they proclaim, what they believe, and how they behave. It wouldn't matter how much they spoke and how much they, they, they said and they, how much they proclaimed to be loyal. As long as they acted disloyally, you wouldn't believe them. You see, consistency between behavior and belief is important to us. It's important in this life. We want to be people who are authentic and consistent. We want people to really believe by the way. We, want, we find out what they believe by the way they act. For example, if you brought me an apple tree and you said, this tree bears pears, I would say, no, it's a pear tree. And you, I, I would argue that you would say the same thing. And if you kept insisting that, no, 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 this pear tree will bear apples, I would say you're a fool. We know that the fruit is determined by the plant that it grows on. You see, if someone tells us they believe in something but they act differently, somehow there's something unbelievable about them. Consistency in behavior and belief is important to us, and that makes the case that it's important to God. So we, now we find ourselves, and so to kind of extrapolate that, let's take a look at what Jesus has to say. So we're in the book of John, we're continuing in our series, Believe, and we're, we're, we've, been working through, we've been working through John chapter 15, 14 last week, where we saw Jesus, he's in the upper room. He's in that room, they just celebrated the Passover, everything is starting, he's, he's coming into his final moments with his disciples, because just in a matter of hours, he knows that he's going to be given up. The authorities are going to come for him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to falsely accuse him. And they're going to torture him. And eventually, they're going to, he's going to die. But he has a few hours in between all the, before this happens. And he uses that time to pour into his disciples, to speak life, to speak his word into them. And so that's where we find ourselves today. So in John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. I am the true wine, and my Father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus here, he's using the analogy of a vineyard, and most of you are familiar with vineyards. The disciples in that day, they, as soon as he mentioned, he mentioned this analogy, the picture of a vineyard would come to their minds because having traveled all through Israel, they would have come across a picture like this, a vineyard, and this happens to be one from, from Israel. You see, he's, he's, he's laying out the land, he's laying out what the features are, he's laying out the people involved. He's saying, God is the vine dresser, I'm the wine, and you 
the disciples or to us today, he's saying, you are the branches. Everyone has a specific purpose. God, he's the vine dresser. He's the one who takes care of it. He's the one who makes it grow. He's the one who provides the care it needs. He's the one who, who sets it the way it, he plants it. He does everything that needs to happen. And Jesus is the vine that brings the nutrients, brings life, brings joy, brings life back from, from God to the branches. And the branches, they have one function, and that is to bear fruit. Jesus says, God is the gardener, Jesus is the wine, and we are the branches. We're connected to him, the fruit we bear will resemble the plant that we're connected to. You see, but when our behavior is inconsistent with our belief, when our behavior is inconsistent with who we are connected to, it bothers us and it bothers God a whole lot more. You see, every branch that does not bear fruit, this is what Jesus is saying in verse 2. He says, every branch that does not bear fruit, what does he do? He cuts them off. He, it bothers him so much when belief and behavior are, uh, th th they don't meet, when there is a gap between belief and behavior, when it's so drastic, he does what? He cuts them off. He says, a branch that does not bear fruit is cut off. It's thrown away. What should be kept in mind, though, that Jesus is warning against a branch that seems to be connected to the vine. Other than the fruit, there's nothing else that would be distinguishable about this, about this branch. You see, the branches, are, they are also a part of the, uh, they're part of the plant. They're connected to the vine, but somehow they're not able to bear fruit. They are found in the company of those in the church. They look like those in the church, but they do not bear fruit like those in the church are supposed to. It bothers God so much that Jesus says he cuts them right off the plant. He removes them. He disconnects them from their source of life. So the question then is what is this fruit that, we're, that he's looking for? You see, when, when the gardener looks at this plant, what is it? What is the behavior? What is it that he's looking for? You see, sometimes... We don't realize that a gap exists in our lives because we don't understand this fruit. We don't understand what that fruit is supposed to be. If, we're going to live, if you're going to live lives that are consistent with our beliefs, I think the first thing we ought to do is define what fruit is. What is this fruit? What is, what, what is he looking for? You see, some of us can define fruit like, hey, I'll follow a set of rules or I'll live a good life. I'll do good to others and hopefully they do good back to me. I, I won't, I, I'll live a life that I don't bring hurt to others. I don't bring pain to others. That's my life's goal. Or you may define fruit as I lived a good life in the sense I, I did what I had to. I had a good career. I raised a good family. I lived, I passed on a good legacy. I, I made good relationships. I did all the right things. See, there was a group of people back in Jesus' day that would have let, who would have said the same things. They were known as the Pharisees. They lived to check off the right boxes. They lived to make sure that they appeared good in front of people. They lived so that their appearance was untarnished. They, they lived that life. But yet, Jesus looks at them and he says they are cursed. 
So the question again is, what is it? What is it that Jesus is looking for? Here, the first thing that we need to understand is that the fruit is not determined by us. We don't get to say what the fruit is. The fruit, instead, is determined by God himself, by Jesus. This is what Jesus says in 15, 12 through 14. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So the fruit has to be along these lines. That you love each other. That you love God. You see, love one another as I have loved you. A love that is not predicated by circumstance. A love that's not predicated by reciprocation in the sense that I will love you based on how I feel today. Or I will love you based on how you treat me today. I will love you based on what you can provide me. I will love you based on your qualifications, based on your circumstance, based on who you are so that I get something out of it. That's not the kind of love he's looking at. Instead, he's looking at the love that says, even when they were enemies, he came and died for them. That he would look and he says, there is neither Greek nor Jew. There is no separation in that love. There is no qualifications in that love. It's unmerited love. It's undeserved love. It's love that comes despite your misgivings, despite your flaws, despite who you are, despite who you made yourself to be. It's that love. And he's saying, if you have received that love, love one another. That's one of the fruits. Paul goes on to talk about fruit a little bit more. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, against such things, there is no law. He's saying, if you are connected to the vine, if you are connected to, the, to that source of life, if you're connected to Jesus, if you're connected to the Holy Spirit, if you're connected to God, if you are in that garden, this is the fruit that comes out. Keep in mind, when Paul is saying, listing these fruits, he's not saying, pick one. He's saying, it's the fruit. It's not multiple, it's the fruit. In other words, you can't love and not have joy. You can't be patient and not have self-control. They all work together. They all grow together. They all, as, as a Christian, that's what we're called to grow, the fruit of the Spirit. You see, when, when we first come into the kingdom of God, you may, many of you have, all of you have stories of how you encountered Jesus. And at that moment, you proclaimed your faith. You said, God, this is what I want. This is who I believe. I believe in you. I trust you for my, for, my, for my salvation. I trust in the work that you have done. I trust that you have a purpose for my life, my purpose to bring you glory. You see, we don't, we don't start off having all the fruit. Many of us actually have an a very different version of the fruit than we would hope we do right? We start off somewhere. But here's the story. Here's reality. Here's this fact that you can build, that you can, that you can hold on to, that you were not where you used to be. 
You may not be where you want to be, but you are not where you used to be. We're all on a journey. We're all moving towards something. That's the Holy Spirit's constant working in our lives. Every day, he's moving us. He's pushing us. He's developing in us Christ-likeness. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he says, you were set apart. You were saved so that you may be conformed to the likeness of his image, of the image of his son. He's saying every day, this is what God is working in you. He's creating in you. He's creating in you the image of Christ. So that when the world looks at us, when the world looks at us, he's not seeing, they're not seeing a Marvin. They're not seeing an Alice. They're not seeing a Scott. But instead, they're able to see a Christ. They're able to see Jesus. They're able to see Jesus being built in you, the image of his son in you. And so again, This is the fruit we bear, the fruit of love for each other, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of Christ-likeness. Our fruit is when when we are passionate about God's people, when we are passionate about the church of God, when we are, when we are passionate about serving and participating in the mission of the church, when we are passionate about the things that God's heart is passionate about, when we're passionate about making sure that every last person on this earth has heard the gospel, when every last person has had the chance to encounter Jesus, when we're passionate about that, that's the fruit he's looking for. See, God's heart is that you and I bear fruit. But you see, when we understand what fruit really is, another problem pops up. The problem there is that we're wildly inconsistent. We're wildly inconsistent. We do not always obey God's commands, nor do we always love the way we should love. We believe that God loves us and that he saves us, but somehow that does not translate into our daily relationships, into our, into our relationship with others. We believe that we love the church, but somehow we have a hard time stepping up to serve. We believe that we are called to serve, but when the volunteer lists us, are put out, we have a hard time signing our names to it. We believe that God has called us to take the gospel to all people, but we hardly share the gospel with those who, we're, who are in our circles. We believe that we're called to live our lives all week consistent with God's demands for us, but at times we compartmentalize Jesus and worship and prayer to a Sunday morning. We're wildly inconsistent. So my question for you, and hopefully you're asking the same question, is we know that there is a gap between belief and behavior. The question is, how do we bridge that gap? What do we do? Maybe you're like me, or maybe you're like every other American out there, out out here, where we're taught if there's a problem, what do you do? You fix it. Get, get up, you put on whatever you need to, and just go, go out there, try harder, work harder, do it, just get it done, right? Where we, are, we, all have that, we all have that feeling in us, if only we worked that extra hour, or if we only put that extra, extra time in, things would change. As a matter of fact, if you go down, go, you're checking out at the grocery uh, store and, and right on that aisle, there's a bookshelf and on that shelf are magazines and usually you'll read something like five steps to a better something or four things you can do today to improve something or we'll buy books like a guide to a better life. 
Live your best life now. We're often drawn to these things because that's our response. You see a problem, you see a gap, and our response is, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We can work at it. We can do it. We can, we can just work a little harder, try a little, be- try a little bit more, and we'll get it done. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's just not your personality. Maybe you go for the second route. And the second route is this. We change the standard. We change the belief. You see, a couple of years ago, I, we, uh, I purchased this, this little thing on my wrist. It's a Fitbit. Maybe you have it. Maybe, maybe you have some version of it. Um, I love my Fitbit. I love everything that it it tracks, it tracks the number of steps that I take, it tracks the, my heart rate, it tracks everything from, from how many steps I've climbed to, it, it tracks how much I work out, it tracks how much I, how I sleep, it tells me, I, I'm an information guy, I love charts, and so every time I can look at a chart, um, that, just, that just gets to me, right? And so I love it. But there's one goal that I have on my Fitbit, and that goal is... And they, and they tell you, they'll track it, to stay active 14 hours in a day. All right, for me, 14 hours is I start at 7 in the morning and all the way to 9 a.m. And now Fitbit uh, decides an active hour is when you've taken at least 250 steps. You're thinking, 250, that's not a whole lot. It is a whole lot especially when you're trying to do that for 14 hours in a day. And especially if you have a job like mine where I'm sitting in front of a computer for a major portion of my work day, it's hard to do. I'm in, into a project, I'm into something that I'm working on, and all of a sudden three hours have gone by and I don't even realize that I didn't move, right? And so here's what I do. I've been trying and I've been trying, I've been trying, and you can ask Jen. Not once I've come as close as 13 out of 14. Not once have I ever hit the 14-hour mark. So what do I do? I open up the app, and on that app, right there in the settings, is a little spot where you can change the number of active hours you can track. So insert 14, I went down to 10, uh, 12. Still no luck. And so I went down to 10, and finally I'm getting close. So my question to you right now is, what changed? Did my activity change? Did my health as a result of that activity change? Or did my standards change? You see, so often when we come across a gap between our belief and our behavior, an easy way to fix that gap is to change the standard of behavior. Just lower it. So often in the church, that's our response. When culture says, that a particular stance is wrong, or a particular stance is too rigid. If the church is not careful, we lower that bar. In our own lives, we can do that. So often, we end up lowering bars that now no longer is a God standard, it's our standard. And that's our response sometimes. Or, you're on the other end, and you don't wanna change the standard, So what do you do? You don't want to change belief, so what do you do? You lower the standard of behavior. For example, another one of my goals is on my Fitbit, every day I have to hit hit 10,000 steps, which, again, you're thinking, not a whole lot, but for me, it, it is, right? 
my goal is five days, at least five days a week, I want to hit that 10,000 mark. I, I want to have worked out a certain amount of time, a certain number of days. And so day number one goes, I, I'm hitting 10,000, I'm hitting way more than 10,000. Day number two comes around, I'm still doing great. Day number three, I'm starting to get tired a little bit. Day number four, I've hit 2,000 and I'm done. So what do I tell myself? You know what? I've done well this week. So I'll relax. I've done great this week. I deserve a cheat day, right? So often we can change our behavior. Or at the extreme, this standard is too much. So guess what I'll do? I'll just give up. I'll just walk away. No judgments, right? I'll just walk away. And so often that's how we approach this gap. We look at behavior compare it to belief and say, this is too much for me to handle. This is too much. Many of you have stories of family members or people who, were, who attended church at some point or who, who had certain standards in life that they just could not live up to. Certain standards within the family that they just could not give up, that they could not live up to. And so their response was, I'm just gonna give up. I'm just gonna give up. So what is your response? You see, Jesus gives us a different way out, a different route. So in chapter 15, verses 3 to 11, this is what we read. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Here's the answer. Here's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Jesus tells his disciples that the only way for them to bear fruit for them to live lives of significance, for them to live out the standard that God's called them to, is to abide in him. For us to bear much fruit, we must abide in him and his words, in Christ and his words. You see, anytime Jesus starts speaking and, there, and he uses one particular word over and over and over again, it's, it's probably a smart idea to pay attention. In this chapter, the word abide is used 11 times. In, in the English Standard Version, in the Greek, if you were to pull it out, it's used 12 times. So there is a lot of abiding happening here. So it's probably a smart idea for us to pay attention. It comes from the Greek word meno. If you were here last week, you, you probably remember that's the same word that we use for the place that God's providing for us, the place in eternity, the place that God is saying, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. That abiding that we're going to do forever, for eternity, that same abiding, 
that same word is used here. And he's saying, abide in me and I will abide in you. Basically saying, I want you to remain in me. I want you to stay connected to me. This is what Jesus is saying. I want to be in a relationship with you. But you see, as he's saying this, this is a little confusing to the disciples because just a few, few verses ago, he said, I'm leaving you. So what, is he, what does he mean by abide in me when you're leaving? See, it's confusing to them, but it's also comforting to them because he's saying, I'll still be with you. I'm close with you. Jesus says that in order for us to live consistent lives, we must abide in relationship with him and his words. You see, our actions are indicative of where we abide. For example, if you abide in the world, you'll produce fruits of the world. If you abide, let's say your favorite pastime is a sport, you'll produce fruit that reflects that sport. Whatever your pastime is, whatever your passion is, you will produce results that reflects that passion. For example, Jen and I, we've lived here for about six years. We moved here in 2012. And in these six years, I've picked up a driving technique that's unique to Boston. And it's called the Boston Left. Wow, a lot more people knew about the Boston Left in first service. Now, here's what the Boston Left is. You're standing at an, in, in, at an intersection. You see cars driving past you. You don't wait, you just jump in and create your own space. Whether they're going 80 miles per hour, 20 miles per hour, whether there's space, you find, you make your own space. You don't wait for people, you just do it, right? Or you're at a light, it's a red light, going both ways, you're at that, you're at that turn lane, you know, the turn lane. Um, you're waiting. As soon as that light turns green, you take off. Whether a car's coming at you or not, you're taking that left, right? Oh, I, I, we've all done it. We've all done it. And some of you are sitting here like, uh-uh. No, we've done it. But here's the, here's the, here's the challenge. Or here's the, here's the thing that made me think about it. When I do it in Boston, it's perfectly fine. As a matter of fact, if I don't do it, I'm getting honked at. But... My family lives in Atlanta, and so often we go to Atlanta, or my, Jen's family lives in uh, Pennsylvania, and so we go down there. And then when I do that same exact thing, as a matter of fact, this last visit to Atlanta, I did that, and guess what? I got honked at. They don't appreciate it. They don't appreciate what, uh, how inconsiderate I was, what is perfectly acceptable in the culture that I abide in, produced the fruit of being an inconsiderate you know, person in Atlanta. Where you abide, you produce the fruit. What you abide in, that's the fruit you, you produce. Our actions are indicative of what we abide in. Our fruit is determined by the plant we're attached to. You see, behavior is the litmus test of belief. The fruit is determined by the root. Christians are not called to blend into their community, or to, I'm sorry, into, their, into, their, into the culture that they're living in, but they're called to live distinctive lives. Regardless of your station in life, our behavior needs to reflect the faith that we profess. 
If you believe in Jesus, then you will abide in him, and then you bear fruit that's consistent with your belief. The opposite is also true. If you do not bear fruit consistent with your belief, then you're not abiding in Jesus, and you really don't believe what he says. It would be good for each of us to look into inward. It would be good for each of us and to say, ask yourself, ask myself that question. Am I producing fruit that reflects the faith that I hold on to? Am I producing fruit that reflects the Christ I proclaim? You see, he, there's, a, there's a weird relationship that he talks about right here in this passage. In, cha, in, in those verses, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, he's using, it almost seems like circular logic. He's saying, if you abide in me, you will keep my commandments. But if you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. So which is which? Which is true? Which is, which is the, the cause and which is the consequence? He's saying both of them, they work together. Abiding in Christ means it's part, it, it's a relationship. And that, for, that causes us, that causes us to obey what he says. This is what Jesus is telling us today. For us to bridge the gap between belief and behavior, we need to abide in Christ. For us to bridge the gap between what we proclaim and what we do, the only way that those are gonna come together, the only way consistency is gonna come into our lives is to be able to abide in Christ. So obviously at this point you're asking that question, all right, you've stressed it enough, we need to abide, he abides in us, we abide in him, but the question is, how? How do we do this? How does that come about? Let me put it in terms of a relationship. Let's say it's a husband and wife, or a boyfriend and a girlfriend, or whatever relationship that you can think of. You see, for that relationship to work, it requires of a person to invest his time or her time, invest their resources, invest their person, and if, if that applies to an earthly relationship, that also applies to a heavenly relationship, to a relationship with God. It requires that we spend our time. It requires that we spend our resources. It requires that we spend of our emotions and of who we are in him, in, in, into Christ. You see, Jesus, so often he would go off in his ministry. He would sneak off. Even though he was needed by the people, even though people were waiting on him, even though people were looking for him, he would sneak off. He would do it intentionally. He went off to pray. You see, in any relationship, communication is huge. If there's no communication, that relationship withers and dies. And so that communication, Jesus, example, Jesus models an example for us. He models how we ought to pray. He models that if you're going to have a relationship with Christ, you have to pray. You have to spend time with him, communicating with him. Another major part of that communication is listening. 
So if we're going to listen to God, we're going to have to listen to his word. We're going to have to listen, let it become a part of who we are. It's going to happen. If we're ever going to grow in Christ, if we're ever going to grow the fruit that he's called us to, it is only going to happen through our understanding of the word. Abiding in Jesus and his words can seem like a waste of time, but sanctification or becoming more like him, becoming more like Christ is God's work and his Holy Spirit and his, this work has always happened and will continue to happen through the word of God. The word of God can look into your situation. It can address your belief. The word of God can look into, into your situation, can address your behavior. The word of God can look into your situation, can address every aspect of your life. And so if we're going to live like Christ, if you're going to be like Christ, the first place we ought to turn to 